Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021 in our home city of New York. But that goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And if you've been a recurring uh, listener or watcher of our SALT Talks, you know of our enthusiasm for the crypto or the digital asset space. And we're very excited to bring you our latest episode of our digital asset series with two uh, fantastic founders and executives in that space. Uh, those two guests that I'm referring to are Asif Hirji. Uh, and Kyle Samani. Asif is the president of Figure, which is a blockchain-based home equity lender. And prior to joining Figure, uh, Asif was the chief operating officer uh, and president at Coinbase. Uh, prior to that, he was an operating advisor at Andreessen Horowitz, a chief restructuring officer of Hewlett Packard, and served as the president and COO of TD Ameritrade. Uh, Asif also held senior leadership positions at TPG Capital, Saxo Bank, Hewlett Packard, and Bain Capital, and has served on a number of public and private boards, including Citrix Systems. Kyle Samani is the co-founder and managing partner at Multicoin Capital, which is a thesis-driven investment firm that invests in cryptocurrencies, tokens, and blockchain technology. In his current role, uh, Kyle helps identify market opportunities and sets the strategic direction of the firm. Prior to Multicoin, uh, Kyle co-founded Pristine, which is an enterprise software company that enables deskless workers with solutions for smart glasses. And under his leadership as CEO, Pristine grew to millions in revenue and raised over $5 million in venture funding before being acquired by Upskill in 2017. Kyle is based in Austin, Texas, and holds a degree in finance and management from NYU Stern and has been programming since he was about 10 years old. Definitely uh, way ahead of me on that one. But hosting today's talk is me. Uh, again, I'm John Darcy. I'm, I'm a managing uh, director at SALT, as well as a director of business development at Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm uh, with about $8 billion in assets. Uh, we also were the first 40-act fund and uh, the first fund of hedge funds to make a direct allocation into Bitcoin. Uh, and we currently have about $500 million of exposure into Bitcoin in our flagship products. Uh, but I want to start off, Asif, I read a little bit about your bio, but I want to hear more from the horse's mouth. You were at TD Ameritrade. You were the president and, uh, and COO. Uh, you also have worked at some of the most respected investment institutions in the world, Bain Capital, uh, TPG, Andreessen Horowitz. What convinced you as somebody that has this diverse background that it was time to dive headfirst into the crypto space, into the digital asset space that you did at Coinbase yeah. and now at Figure? Yeah, thanks for inviting me to this. Look, I've been a, an, an operator, entrepreneur, investor in fintech for over 30 years. I started, you know, initially in, in things like direct banks and insurers. And I would tell you, you know, I'm a software engineer by background, right? So, so to me, very simplistically, we've been we've been to two waves, and we're now going to the third wave of innovation in financial services, right? The first wave was we went off mainframes and onto distributed computing, protocol-led, Internet One, great businesses being built, including things like Ameritrade and so on. Basically, what we did was we made it self-service. You took things that you had to go into a bank or a teller to do, and we made them self-service on the Internet with a web with a web, and, and with a web browser. And that, that lowered costs and it, it increased uh, inclusion 
but but fundamentally didn't alter the cost structure. The next thing we did was when we went from distributed to mobile cloud. And that that made things like the phone ubiquitous. It made lots of different types of products available. Again, all you did was you took the application and shoved it further out towards towards the user, lowered some costs, but still didn't fundamentally attack the, the cost structure of financial services. We're now about to go to the third wave, and that's from mobile cloud to decentralized, right? And for the first time, or blockchain, if you prefer, for the first time, we're actually we're actually affecting where the data is. The data is no longer on a central computer somewhere. It, the data is now distributed out to the users. You, you control your own data. Kyle controls his own data. I control my own data. And the fundamental thing that blockchain does is it gets rid of the intermediaries, right? The, the financial services system we have today is built such that you have to have a whole bunch of trusted intermediaries in every transaction because that's the only way you can ensure that if I want to pay you, John, some amount of money, that my bank takes it from my account, sends it to through the through the pipes to your bank, who then ultimately gets it to your account. And every single intermediary along the way there charges a fee. Right? With blockchain, you can have peer-to-peer, bilateral, risk-free, real-time settlement. And that means I can send you money as easily as it would be for me to send you an email. As long as I have your address, I can send it to you and there's no settlement risk and it, and it, just, it just settles. And that means that the cost structure crashes for financial transactions. And so that's why I'm excited about crypto in general, which is I think it'll fundamentally rewrite the way we do financial transactions. It'll make financial services more or less free. And so this whole concept of the unbanked and underbanked will, will go away because you'll have financial inclusion. And best of all, you will be able to create this with far less capital being deployed, far less complexity. And you'll get rid of a number of the issues that we've had most recently with things like, say, the GameStop situation or you know, what happened with Robinhood, et cetera. None of those things can happen in a bilateral risk-free settlement mechanism that, that the crypto allows. Right. And Kyle, you come from a programming background, an engineering background. Uh, what was your sort of eureka moment uh, as a young man uh, deciding that you wanted to make crypto or digital assets your career? Yeah. So um, in early 2016, um, after I had stepped down from Pristine, I was kind of trying to figure out what I want to do next with my life. Um, and I, you know, I studied finance at NYU and had a kind of an always had an interest in the intersection of software and finance. Um, I started playing around with some of Stripe's APIs, which were, uh, this is like February, March, 2016. Um, and I got, you know, to the limit of them pretty quickly, which is basically Stripe made it really easy to, you know, accept credit card payments as a merchant. Um, and I remember I was, I had some ideas I was fiddling with. And one of the ideas I remember I had is I wanted to do something where, you know, as a user, I could go to a website and I could re- receive payment as a user quickly, like within, you know, five to 25 seconds depending on my identity or, or some action I conducted or something. And I, I just kind of assumed that, you know, Stripe was like the payments company. They were, you know, it's kind of top dog. I just assumed that Stripe made it really easy that as a consumer, you can get paid reasonably quickly. Um, and what I learned real quickly after digging into Stripe's APIs is that, A, that's, that was wrong. And, and that even still to this day, as a consumer, if you go to a website, getting paid is, is very, very difficult. Paying is okay. I wouldn't say it's great. But typing in a credit card and paying is okay, but getting paid sucks. And I realized that limitation. And I discovered something called Ethereum, and it, it dawned on me quite quickly that with Ethereum, I could go to any website and I could get paid theoretically in seconds. Um, and then I started kind of exploring what else you could do with Ethereum, and I realized it was kind of fully programmable, extensible money. Um, and, and when that light bulb went off, it, it struck me as, as a very, very important kind of idea and technology. Um, and so over the course of 2016, I started reading and, and learning about the space. Um, and investing my own money and, and time. By the spring of 2017, I had developed a full-time internet hobby 
um, and made the decision to do that professionally instead of just personally. Um, and so launched, made the decision to launch Multicoin in May of 17. Um, we launched our hedge fund on October 1st of 17. And we, we often come at these talks through the lens of Bitcoin as, as most people's gateway drug into crypto or DeFi, but you, you're not a Bitcoin first uh, you know, evangelist within the crypto space. You're much more Ethereum first, and then obviously Multicoin, you guys are investing in a series of protocols. What did you like about Ethereum and, and what didn't excite you about Bitcoin? And, and to this day, how do you look at sort of the differences between those two platforms? Yeah, so uh, there's like a there, generally speaking, one, one of the a lot of the sources of confusion, both inside of crypto and among new folks who are getting into crypto, is the split between what I'll call the money crypto people and the tech crypto people. Um, the money crypto people tend to have an econ background um, and are tend to be focused on kind of libertarian ideals of, of sovereignty and, and ownership and you know central banks inflating the, the monetary base and, and all those kinds of things. Um, and those were obviously the first people to get into crypto because that's kind of what would espouse Bitcoin. Um, and the tech people have only gotten into crypto more recently, um, kind of building on top of Ethereum and, and now on top of some of the newer um, smart contract platforms like Solana and some other ones as well. Um, I've never had a strong background in, in economics or and never had dove into kind of the history of central banks and, and all those things. So the Bitcoin value proposition to me just never resonated. Um, I knew what Bitcoin was in 2012. I just didn't care. Um, Ethereum struck me as important because I understood that um, I could program money in ways that Stripe could not let me do. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't 10% better than Stripe. It was it was infinitely more extensible than Stripe. Um, and so that that's what kind of pulled me in into the space. Um, since then, the space has evolved even more, and and we can do all kinds of things that I couldn't have imagined then. And now these systems are becoming fast and scalable, um, and, and we're kind of seeing the next wave of things that you can do that are truly crypto native, things like social tokens and NFTs um, that that weren't even conceivable a few years ago. Right. And awesome. Yeah, let me talk about. Yeah, let me let me offer a perspective on that. So 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 I I was one of the the original uh, Bitcoin um, believers, and and I still am. And I, you know that's what got me into it. And I would tell you that you know as a software programmer, <laughs> so so and I do have a finance background, but. You know, he, he, whoever he, she, or they were, Satoshi solved one of the hardest problems in computer science, right? It was how to do distributed trust. And, and you know, when I was at Watson Labs way back when, this is one of the issues we used to we used to try and, you know, beat our heads against the wall against, and we, we couldn't come up with a solution. They, they came up with a solution, and it's, and it's pretty ingenious. But, but more than that, they showed a way to build an application such that the data is decentralized, right? That, that's the fundamental breakthrough. And all the other things that came along uh, what, you know, whether you're you're an Ethereum believer or Solana, whatever, it doesn't matter, right? They would not have been possible without without Bitcoin. And I would argue, and maybe this is not a popular point of view, crypto can't succeed if Bitcoin doesn't. And that's because the Bitcoin, if you think of crypto for the average person, if you said crypto, they would think Bitcoin. They don't think something else if, right. if they think of crypto at all, right? And to have the single largest asset in the space, the one that, that the start of the space, then fail is is not is not going to be helpful for the industry, right? Um, it's not like the internet where you could say, oh, AOL introduced the masses to the internet and then it's okay that AOL failed because we had the rest of it come along. It's not the right, to me, it's not the right analogy. So a couple of things in my mind. One is Bitcoin is super important. It solved one of the biggest problems and showed us how to build applications in a way that we hadn't thought of before. Uh, I believe it's a store of value. I believe it'll continue to innovate with stuff being, being built on top and beside it. But I think that it has unleashed 
all the other innovation that that Kyle is talking about. You know, we wouldn't have had NFTs. We wouldn't have had all these other things without Satoshi and, that, and whoever, again, whoever he, she, or they were having created the breakthrough in the first place. Right. And also tell us about figures. So you were a president and COO at Coinbase. You were responsible yeah. uh, for, for a lot of, you know, early to mid-stage growth, you know, you left prior to the direct listing, but you were responsible for a lot of the growth there. And you probably had your your pick of the litter in terms of where you could go next in the space. You chose figure. Tell us about what figure is and why you chose that. So, so, so I go back to, I really think that, that blockchain or crypto should be fundamentally rewriting the way we do financial services. And it, it is, if you look at DeFi, but DeFi is aimed at people who are already long crypto. Like DeFi is bringing traditional financial services products to people who are already long crypto. It is not showing people like you and I and others who, who are using traditional financial services how to use crypto to do those things better, right? Do, do you understand the difference, right? Yep. So if you're long crypto, DeFi is great. If you're, if you're just, if you don't have crypto at all, so far, blockchain has had no impact on you at, at all, unless it's a speculative asset class. And for blockchain or crypto to be successful, it needs to be as ubiquitous as the internet, right? We couldn't, we shouldn't be able to imagine living life without it if that if that's really going to be successful. So one of my biggest frustrations at Coinbase was that most of the projects that came to us, while they espoused that they were doing something to to in financial services for for the masses, et cetera, what they really were was token speculation. They, 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 when you got right down to it, they really weren't doing anything real. And so I went looking for who is looking, who is using blockchain to at scale make financial transactions, everyday financial transactions better. And Figure was the only company I found. And what Figure is doing is it takes very simple financial transactions that we do every day. Like I want to uh, borrow money to buy a house, or I want to borrow money to pay off my credit card, or I want to make a payment to a person, et cetera. And it, it's built how to do them on blockchain. So it's taken these really immensely complex capital intensive processes and boiled them down to things that happen in minutes with, with minimal capital requirements. And we're, we're not doing it because we're trying to be the biggest lender in the world. We're trying to do, do, we're doing it to show the lending industry it can be done. And we, we're able to originate mortgages at double the margin of any other provider in the space. We're able to do home equity lines of credit um, instantly, whereas it's normally a 45 to 60 day process. And now we have, you know, the largest players in the space looking at our technology, wanting to adopt it. And that's what we're after. We're after them trying to adopt it and, and, and bring out the solutions to the masses at a, with lower capital and much lower costs. That's the, that's the promise of crypto. And that's what we're trying to push. Why did, why did figure start with home equity lending uh, as a product? It was it, Right. You know, proof of concept in order to expand to a more institutional audience and demonstrate that proof of concept? Yeah, we, Why did they start there? So, no, so we needed something that had both sides of the market, right? We needed something that the consumers needed and, and that the financial markets would then buy. So, so there's, 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 you know, you could choose a lot of things. And then we wanted something that you could actually control end to end to right. begin with. And so a home equity line of credit is actually a good product that way. And in, in the original... If I was, um, you know, if I was traditionally a, a lender like a SoFi or whatever, I would originate, say, $100 million worth of these loans. And then I would go to the market and say, I want to securitize this. I'd get a whole bunch. I, I would represent what that package looked like in terms of FICO scores and, and uh, loan to value and geographic distribution. I get a bunch of bids. I'd pick a winner. They would hire an auditor. They would audit my loans. 60 to 90 days later, the transaction would finally settle. In the meantime, all my loans are tied up and capital is being consumed. The buyers got their capital tied up. 
hugely expensive process. We don't do any of that because it, when we originate a loan now, we get the we get the credit score company to stamp the score to the blockchain. When we get a valuation, we get the valuation company to stamp the valuation to the blockchain. There's no more auditing anything. You you as an investor can sit there and say, hey, I want California, I want CLTV uh, less than 80, I want FICO over 720. Only the loans that match that show up. And because we're replacing trust with truth on the blockchain. And if you want them, you can bid on them in the open market and you buy them. And so we've turned a 45 to 90 day capital intensive process to a capital in advance of, of origination process. It's capital, it's, it's got capital light. And that, right. that, then that's just in one product. Yeah, it almost reminds you a little bit of the early days of Amazon where Jeff Bezos chose books as his right. you know, proof of concept. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna master the logistics around delivering books, right. the commodity that everyone knows and, and likes. Uh, and then once I do that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna expand this technology to a whole different suite yeah, of products. Exactly, exactly right. So Kyle, uh, at Multicoin, you guys you know, do, do multiple things. Uh, you invest into liquid tokens, but you're also investing into uh, projects built on top of the, a lot of the blockchains that you're investing in. What are some of the most compelling use cases you've seen, uh, you know, in addition to talking about something like Figure, uh, what are other really interesting use cases you've seen for uh, blockchain-based applications? Yeah, so I'll touch on an example here that's very real world and, and intangible. And then if you want, we can go into some of the more abstract, weird, kind of less tangible things. Um, so we're the late investors in a thing called Helium. Um, and, and Helium is one of our largest positions and we're, we're super excited about it. Um, Helium is a new business model for deploying and managing wireless networks. So what does that mean? Um, if you think about Verizon or AT&T today or any of those big telecoms, right? They're extraordinarily capital intensive. They have to go, you know, identify where they want to have towers. They have to rent the land. They have to work with tower companies. They have to work with city governments. They have to hire armies and armies of people, get them trucks, get them a bunch of hard hats and equipment. They drive around, they, you know, install all this equipment. They run a bunch of backhaul. It's extraordinarily capital intensive and they have to do it at large scale. Like doing one city alone is not enough because people expect their phones to work whenever they, wherever they go. Right. So you have to do, you know, large, large geographical coverage. Um, the only way to do that is to then, you know, raise a tremendous amount of debt financing uh, and then lock in your customers into two-year contracts. Um, so you have some, some guaranteed revenue that the debt underwriters will, you know, lend against basically. Um, and it's obviously very kind of centrally coordinated and top-down. Helium is basically the exact opposite of that. Um, the vision in Helium is any, any Joe Schmo at home, um, either consumer in their home or small business owner, can buy a hotspot, just about yay big, uh, plug it in the wall, um, in their window, put it next to the window, plug in electricity, plug in Ethernet, uh, and then create radio waves. Um, and any device walking around nearby can access those radio waves and pay per byte of data. Um, and if you think about this model, you take the two largest sources of cost, which are labor and land, and you send both of those costs to zero. Um, it, you just outright remove those costs from the system. Um, and so this is really kind of disruptive to the cost structure model of telecom. Um, we were fortunate to lead the, the last round in Helium in 2019, um, and they started rolling out the Helium network uh, later in 2019. Um, today, there's over 60,000 hotspots live around the United States and Western Europe and China. Another 500,000 hotspots have been backordered but not yet shipped. Um, and you just see this network really rolling out um, and, and so this is the kind of thing that we're really excited about is using these decentralized technologies as a way to incentivize people all over the world who don't know each other, don't trust each other, to all do some collective action um, and produce some net positive results, um, you know, as a result of, of that, that coordination. 
And the best part of this whole system is the whole thing is, is not centrally owned and, and managed. Helium Inc. could go out of business today and the blockchain would keep running, all the system would keep running. Um, it's a truly decentralized system. And, and that's the kind of power that we, that, 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 that is the new kind of crypto enabled business model that we think is super exciting that just, you can't map this to the traditional, um, you know, web two type business models at all. Uh, it's fascinating. So now I want to hear your weird abstract uh, application. Yeah. So, um, I mean, look, DeFi is kind of the first segment of that. As Asif noted today, this DeFi ecosystem has a fair bit of press coverage. Um, there's called it $50 billion or so of capital kind of sloshing around in it right now. Um, it is circular. Um, the DeFi ecosystem is mostly people levering up to speculate on more DeFi things. Um, that is okay. That is not bad in and of itself. That is just kind of, it's the wild west. And the first thing people did was take leverage because that's what people do in financial markets. Um, and whether they lever up on is they levered up on other DeFi crypto things. Um, but now they're, they're proving that this stuff works and you're going to start to see it expand into more regulated institutional offerings over the next few years. Um, so DeFi is kind of section number one. I won't harp on it too much more. I, I think some of the, the newer kind of cutting edge areas that we think are super interesting are things like social tokens um, and NFTs. And I think these things go together in some interesting ways. Right. Um, social tokens are, are my kind of favorite thought area at the moment. Uh, what is a social token? You may ask. Um, there's no kind of strict definition, but but I'd say loosely the idea of a social token is having a, a token that is um, in the name of, of a person or of a, a group. So it could be Kyle coin or Asif coin. Um, it could Salt be... Coin. Huh? Salt yeah, coin. Salt coin. Could sure. be salt coin. You know, there, you We're can have whatever. You can have David Geta coin. You can have Red Hot Chili Peppers coin. I don't really care. Right? Pick your pick your entity or organization that today doesn't really have a um, you know asset that represents value and/or utility around them, and, and give one of them to those people. Um, the obvious thing you're going to say is, "What do you do with these coins?" And the answer today is, "I don't really know." Um, but I do know that people are creative and they're going to do all kinds of weird, wacky stuff um, with them. And I do think it's going to become kind of a normal part of society where um, it might not be everyday people. I don't know if my mom is going to have her own coin. She probably doesn't care. But I think for anyone who has kind of a public presence on the internet, um, this is just, just like everyone has an Instagram or a Facebook or a Twitter. It's going to be kind of just part of become part of the public discourse um, on kind of internet society. And creators and celebrities are going to do interesting things with their coins. So the obvious things are like, hey, if you own X number of coins, you can get lunch with me. Um, you get access to movie premieres and stuff like that. Those kinds of things are relatively obvious um, and, and will happen over the next six to 12 months. Um, I think there's going to be a bunch of creators, though, that start to do really interesting things. Like, for example, the, these TikTok hype houses. I wouldn't be surprised if you know those creators, you get three of them and say, look, if you own X number of each of our coins, you can come be in our next TikTok video. And you can use that to launch your own kind of TikTok career and then, you know, develop your own brand identity from there. Right. Like, and, and the way that these things are going to get remixed, um, I think is just going to be super interesting and fascinating. Um, the design space for social tokens is, is incredibly broad and interesting. Um, and it's going to unlock kind of the intersection of human creativity and finance in a way that's just never intersected before. So awesome. Going back to figure, you guys demonstrated the, the use case for blockchain technology uh, with this home equity product. On March 11th, you had your first securitization. It was an ABS securitization. You know, maybe prior to that, banks were saying, oh, you know, this blockchain thing sounds kind of interesting, but do we really need it? We have traditional databases. We have traditional ways that we 
you know, gather information about the, you know, the underlying loans and assets and, and, and then the securitizations. Did that trigger some you know, sort of aha moment for banks that, that's led to a, a different level of interest? And let's say, for example, we had a figure during the global financial crisis or prior to the global financial crisis. How would uh, you know, figure have changed the way we analyzed different securitized products and would it help prevent right. potentially you know, the crisis? No, two two really good questions. So, so, so the securitization the securitization was a milestone, and third parties went and looked at it and said, "Hey, compared to a regular securitization, not including the ratings, which is even more expensive, right? This saved over 120 basis points compared to a regular securitization." Now, you think about how big the securitization market is. 120 basis points on that is a very, very big number for the industry, right? So, we got a lot of we got a lot of interest in that. And, and it's just some of the very basic things that are different, right? So if you're using blockchain, like for, for a normal company originating loans, running a warehouse, right? You, temp, you, you warehouse loans before you get ready to securitize them. If I've got a provider of the warehouse, that provider of the warehouse has three to five people managing the exposures in the warehouse to make sure I'm not overrunning the geographic distribution I'm supposed to be in or the FICO scores or whatever. And I've got two or three people doing that. We have none of that with blockchain. It's a smart contract. The smart contract basically says, here are the rules that govern the warehouse. That's it. That's, you know, you can't, if the rule set is right, you can't overrun the warehouse with, with stuff that you're not supposed to. And so those three to five people go away on both sides. It's just one very simple example. And so we got to the point where when we originally started, we had hedge funds as the primary buyers of, of the things we were, of the loans we were originating. Now it's major banks, credit unions. Uh, it's, and pension funds, who are the who are the major buyers of all these things? And secondly, you know, it was hedge funds that were providing the financing. Today, the financing is provided by, you know, the the Wall Street banks, that all the big ones, including J.P. Morgan, right? If you had said two years ago, J, you know, Jamie Dimon's bank, who said Bitcoin was a sham, was was providing a warehouse on on blockchain, people would have laughed you out the building, right? But but that's what they're that's what they're doing. So so that's that's what's happened in terms of the adoption. And to your second question. Because the servicing data is all, again, on blockchain, our servicing data is real-time and it's real-time available to anybody, right? As long as you have the loan ID, you can look up the, the performance of the loan real-time. And so when we, were, when we had the, the COVID correction just over a year ago, we actually had hedge funds who were buyers of our loans using our real-time data to look at the performance. They were using it to ARB MBSs on the market because they could see how well our loans were performing relative to, to, to others. And by the way, our loans were outperforming, were, were outperforming first lien Fannie, right? That's how, that's how well they were performing because we had the real, because we had the real-time data and, and were able to manage them in real time. And so again, you go to, you go to a blockchain-based system, it is less capital consumptive. It is much more real-time. It is higher, therefore, credit quality and higher credit performance. There's no reason to not do it this way. And right. that's, that's all we're trying to do. We don't, we don't go in saying to people, we have a blockchain-based system, are you interested? We go in and we say, we have a system for loan origination, sales, and service that saves you over 150 basis points, is, is real-time, and, and requires less capital. Are you interested? It just I happens mean, to be on blockchain. It's an example, the COVID correction that really resonates with us at SkyBridge. You know, We had heavy exposure to the structured credit space. That entire market broke down on a, on a technical Correct. basis. It, fr it you know, froze. Yeah. All these intermediaries and, and one, you know, decides to do something out of the ordinary and it freezes the entire market. So, you know, we, we are very transparent with our investors. We're marking things to market. The entire market froze. So we're telling people, you know what, our assets are marked down 25%. Fundamentally, they're not impaired. 
you know, we don't think really at all, or, or definitely not to that extent. Um, but if you remove all those intermediaries and you create a more efficient, transparent system, uh, you make a lot of people's lives easier, including ours, and when communicating to clients around March, April of 2020. Um, but Kyle, you, you talked about how you know you really got jazzed about crypto um, through Ethereum. You know, you you said, "Wow, this is this is taking what Stripe has done with its API and and you know putting some leverage onto that." But uh, there's other blockchains that compete with Ethereum. Ethereum obviously has has uh, created tremendous network effects and has become the go-to platform for NFTs and other tokens. But there's other blockchains that are out there, you know, doing similar things that in, in a lot of ways might be more efficient uh, or, or better constructed. What are some other competing blockchains with Ethereum uh, that you think stand out? Sure. So we've been kind of loud public investors in a blockchain called Solana. We've been early investors since kind of they started R&D back in early to mid-2018. Um, the Solana network has been live now for about 16 months or so. Um, the reason we're, we've been so excited about Solana is they have from inception been focused on two things. One, enabling on-chain limit order books. Uh, and two, really focusing on scaling these systems. Um, one of the interesting things out of Ethereum is the market cap of Ethereum today is 250 billion plus or minus. Um, and the number of daily transactions on Ethereum is about one and a half million. Um, so if you just think about that, that math, like of any system you know, whether it's Facebook or Twilio or, or Uber, whatever, any of these systems, yep. um, the market cap per daily user on Ethereum is, is truly like it's a totally different level. It's, it's very, very high market cap per daily user. Um, now, these things aren't apples to apples comparisons because they're obviously different than what they do is, is different. So you can't rely too heavily on a direct comparison, but they, they really, um, the number of users there is actually a lot smaller than you would think given the hype and given the market cap. Um, our, our theory has been that you have to scale these things to get you to 500 million daily users plus. Um, and the Solana team has, has provided the, the most, I think, credible um, alternative approach to scaling these things. Um, where you can write code now and know it's going to work in six months and in 18 months and in 24 months, um, and you know how it's going to scale. Um, and so we, we've, we've kind of made a big bet there. And, and in the 15, 16 months since this thing has been live, um, we've seen a number of, of pretty interesting uh, developers kind of take advantage of this, um, and the most notable of which is, is called Serum. Um, Serum is a, a new uh, order book. It's a decentralized exchange. Um, it's conceptually similar to Coinbase or FTX or any of these other things. Um, but it runs natively on a blockchain. Um, if you think about financial markets, look at equities, look at FX markets, look at commodities, look at any of these things, the way that all of these liquid assets trade is they trade on order books, um, right? You've got market makers quoting, quoting spreads and quoting liquidity uh, and obviously adjusting their prices as new information comes out and whatever. Um, and that, that's how finance works. Um, and there's a reason that, that it works that way because it's the right kind of way to, to price assets. Um, the challenge in Ethereum has been because of the throughput limitations, you, you just can't run an order book on Ethereum. And, and everyone has kind of agreed that that doesn't really work. Um, and, and Solana has been architected to, with that, what that was the goal from inception was to run an order book on chain. Um, and they've not proven that's possible. Um, it's not as performant as the NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. And I don't, I don't want to claim that it is, um, but it's close enough that you can get global permissionless order books for any arbitrary asset. Uh, and that works now, you can see it live now, and that's already trading you know, 50 to $200 million per day uh, on Serum right now, and that's been growing at a, at a nice steady clip. Um, we really think that the, the key primitive of having an order book available 
um, is going to be the most important kind of financial construction as we think about scaling these systems to billions of people. Right. Awesome. I want to go to payments. So, yep. you know, as we've talked about, Figure started, uh, you know, with HELOC loans and and uh, and used that as a, a proof of concept and has gone out and done securitizations now and is getting heavy institutional interest, but it also has ambitions to solve this uh, blockchain for payments issue, which is, is a, you know, one of the holy grails for the industry about how to really potentially move Definitely. off of those Visa MasterCard rails uh, to deliver point of sale credit. Could you explain to people who are less familiar what that means, what the implications of that are, and whether it is realistic to move off of those traditional credit card rails and, and why uh, you know, point of sale credit is a better solution? Yeah. So, so, so look, if you and I walk into a merchant and we take out a credit card and swipe it, there's, there's actually at least seven or eight intermediaries who, who take part in that transaction between my paying for something and the merchant receiving the money that I'm trying to pay them and me receiving the goods. Okay. And again, each of those, each of those intermediaries takes a cut and, and the poor merchant, depending on the size, is paying somewhere between 100 to 300 basis points on that transaction, right? It's, it's, it's super expensive. And most, most of the merchants are paying at the upper end of that yeah. uh, in terms, of, in terms of, of the fee. And a lot of that goes to the, again, back to the complexity that we've built into the Visa MasterCard system. And not only does it, does it, is it really expensive, but the way Visa MasterCard works, because it's a credit product, um, I, the merchant, am not actually guaranteed that I'm getting the value for the transaction because the consumer can claim that there's fraud or something else, and then I get a chargeback. And, and, and so it's, it's a hideously expensive process for the merchant. Okay. It, 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 you know, studies show that a merchant on $100 is 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 maybe clearing something between eighty seven and ninety five, depending on depending on what they're what they're doing and how often they get charged back, etc. So, go back to what does blockchain do really well? Blockchain does real time bilateral settlement between two parties, no intermediaries, right? So if I went into the merchant and I could pay with stablecoin um, into their wallet, from my wallet to their wallet, settles instantly. There is no risk anymore that there's going to be a chargeback. There is no fee. Other than the the blockchain processing fee itself, which is you know orders of magnitude lower than the three hundred basis points that that Visa, Mastercard, etc., are charging that merchant, you take just a tremendous amount of cost and complexity out of that system, right? So we have built a service we call Figure Pay, which is a challenger bank. So think you know Chime or Dave or whichever your favorite is, meets buy now pay later. So something like a firm meets merchant acquisition. So think Square. Right. So it is, it is, it's got a card. You can use it at any merchant, but if it's a figure pay merchant, it's not the 300 basis points. It's more, it's more or less free and it uses QR codes just like they do all over Latin America and China. It's running entirely on blockchain. And if, and if, and if you're um, a fintech, not only can you leverage this product to offer banking services, payment services to your customers, but you can also offer banking services because it, it, you know, the core banking functionality is provided by the blockchain. There is no core, right? So if you're if you're a bank, one of the biggest one of the biggest costs you have is your core banking system, which is probably antiquated, written in COBOL 15, 30 years ago, right? And 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 all again, all of that goes away using blockchain. And so we this is we we have four or five of these businesses, lending being the most mature, pay being somewhere in the middle, and we have some some that we're incubating. Pay is now getting traction, kind of like like lending was, say, two years ago. Lots of banks looking at it, lots of fintechs looking at it, lots of retailers looking at it as a way, as a superior way of providing that merchant acceptance, credit card type functionality, also uh, banking functionality to, to customers. Again, at a much lower cost, all over your all, all over your right. smartphone, all on blockchain rails. 
Yeah, and and we're investors in Chime and Klarna, so we understand that that story uh, intimately right. well. Um, right. So I want to talk about regulation. So Elizabeth Warren, uh, everybody on Wall Street's favorite senator, she's both anti the establishment, too big to fail financial system, banking system, but she's also been a sort of loud critic of crypto, of blockchain. She recently issued a letter to SEC Chair Gary Gensler saying, by July 28th, I don't know how she picked that date, I need to have answers on how we're going to regulate crypto. Um, are you concerned? I'll start with you, Asif. Are you concerned about you know, regulation being this uh, existential threat to the development of this crypto ecosystem and blockchain technology and, and uh, cryptocurrencies? Or how do you see regulation in the United States shaking out? So, so I think I think regulation is a big risk. Um, I think you you know you look at what China's doing with with you know fintechs that are that are listing in the in, in the U.S. Let, let alone anything else. And the Bitcoin hash rate. If 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 the regulators really are serious about lowering costs and increasing financial inclusion, and that's what they claim they are, if they're serious about that, they have to be pro crypto. I, I believe the reason that they're not pro crypto is because they don't understand it and they view it simply as an asset class, which is the wrong way to think about it. Right. And not only an asset class, but a highly speculative asset class, which which will only end in their minds badly for most investors. And so that's why when I was at Coinbase, we started a bunch of a bunch of things that that tried to educate regulators and educate our legislatures about what crypto is and what it can do. And that's making you know those things are making progress slowly. But they're making progress, and so I, I believe there is a mismatch between the level of understanding within regulators um, and their perception of what crypto is versus where crypto is actually trying to go. Is there, you know, are there things in crypto which are which which are which are scammy? Yes, right. Will some people lose their money? Yes, but that doesn't mean that all of crypto is scammy, or that or that there is no there is no real value underneath it. And, and it, for it, for a lot of what we do every day. There is a better crypto solution that is lower cost and will drive more inclusion for people who are currently excluded from the system. Kyle, when you're evaluating investments, whether it be in liquid tokens or, or companies that are developing on different blockchains, how do you evaluate re regulatory risk and what's your outlook uh, for regulation in the U.S.? Yeah, so kind of kind of building on Austin's comments here, it's definitely a, a real risk and like there's no one in the world who can forecast how the political winds are going to change, um, both at the in the executive branch as well as in Congress, and how that's going to kind of filter into you know the SEC, the CFTC, and other regulatory bodies. Um, those things are actually impossible to predict um, on any medium to long horizon, term horizon. Um, I, I would say though, I'm just generally an optimist. Um, if you look back at the history of, of the internet, there's been a lot of moments where people thought it wasn't going to going to take off. Where you know the CIA, I think, tried to, or the NSA tried to ban encryption, right? Like there was that whole debate. There's been others over the years. Uh, if you look back at, at the early history of Bitcoin, say circa 2010 to 2014 or so, there were a lot of real concerns that governments were going to just shut this thing down as a as a threat to monetary systems and stuff. Um, and actually, now it's being you know in a meaningful way embraced by a number of governments, um, U.S. and, and others. Um, and and so I'd say I'm just generally a techno optimist on most of these things. Uh, and I, I think specifically, if you look at like the, just the wealth creation and, and obvious lifestyle creation of software um, and, and, you know, smartphones and computers over the last 25 years, um, literally everyone in the world kind of understands just how powerful that force has been. Um, and, and so the, the waves of, 
I, I think general kind of interest is in letting innovators innovate and, and do things. Obviously, some folks like Senator Warren, you know, like to yell things on, on national television. But I, I'm generally quite optimistic that, that that's not going to... It may cause some bumps here and there, but I don't think it, it's going to present an existential um, crisis of, of any form. Do you think... Um, do you think, you know, it's a Bitcoin issue, but it's also a broader issue for crypto that China has now basically completely exited the entire cryptocurrency experiment? They've said, you know what? Uh, well, at least decentralized cryptocurrencies and, and blockchain technologies. They, with the, the DD uh, listing issue that you referenced earlier, Asif, they're very, becoming yep. very paranoid about data. And so they want to control every bit of data that passes through that country in and out. And so, you know, they're obviously going to prioritize the digital wand. Uh, do you think yeah. China's sort of adversarial stance towards crypto is going to hamper development of the space? Asif, we'll start with you. So, so I, I, I think that there's just like every technology, right? There's there are two ways or three ways you could use it. Some of which are not great, and and China is showing us that there is a dark side to crypto, which is you can use it to to further the totalitarian state, right? right? So, if you should there be central bank digital currencies, maybe, right? Maybe. But China's basically said our currency will be digital because that lets us uh, that lets us further enhance the surveillance state because now you cannot get the fiat unless you have a digital wallet and I issued it to you. So I, the Chinese government, know exactly who you are and I can track everywhere you spend it. And if I don't like what you say or what you do, I can block it. Right. Now that is that is kind of the 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 evil twin, if you want to think of it, of, of of crypto in almost every sense, because crypto is trying to be decentralized. It's trying to empower the 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 end consumer. It's trying to give data back to people so that they can control the the privacy settings of it, et cetera. But that same technology is being used in a very different way in China. I, you know, my my guess is it will continue to. There, there, there's there's been more and more sort of technological technological separation between between the West and China, and I I personally believe that will continue. I don't think it's a threat to Bitcoin or Ethereum or any of the other projects that that, that we've mentioned here on this show. But I do think that it's a very it's a very um, different application of the same technology with a very very different outcome, which is not which is not great for humanity at that point. Kyle, how do you look at the China issue? Um, it doesn't impact us in a meaningful way on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, what, you know, they've shut down mining is, is the big thing that's happened. Um, motivations are, you know, fewfold, but but it's not as, I, I think the, the most cynical interpretations are, are overstated, um, at least of that particular action. Um, it does feel like China is generally moving towards a kind of, so, you know, surveillance state, you know, Orwellian um, future, that, that seems to be happening. Although I, I don't take it for granted that, that is actually the outcome that we're going to get, um, although it's a, it's a reasonable probability outcome. Um, when we think about crypto and the opportunity in China, there's kind of two angles we think about. One is developers and the other is users. Um, most developers who are building kind of novel crypto things who are based in China are leaving China just for kind of personal, personal safety reasons, which is pretty smart thing to do. Um, a lot of them go to Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong, you know, pick, pick your locale nearby. And that's pretty common. And so that, that doesn't really create a problem for us as a firm. Um, the other question then, of course, is, is users for these things. Um, if you look at who is using uh, DeFi today, it's actually overwhelmingly not Americans. Um, it's overwhelmingly people in Asia. Southeast Asia is a massive market. It has almost no press coverage in the United States. Um, China is a massive market. 
And the reason is because these a lot of these people in these countries are trying to opt out of their fiat fiat systems and of their payment rails um, that they you know are, are more or less you know subject to from from birth onwards. Um, and so those people are very interested in experimenting with these technologies, trying them, figuring out what they can and can't do, um, so they can opt out of the, the local regimes. Um, and given what we've seen there in the last few years, I, I'm quite optimistic that will continue to be true. It may become more, you know, legally um, risky for for folks in China specifically. Unclear how exactly how that's going to play out. Um, but you know, there's just you know across Southeast Asia and China, you've got call it two billion or so, two and a half billion people um, who, for the most part, are trying to opt out of their their local financial systems. Um, and and that market is just astronomically large. Um, and so we continue to spend a large percentage of our time and energy, uh, both understanding what developers are doing there, as well as understanding the way that, that consumers are using these technologies um, in China and elsewhere. Right. Well, Asif and Kyle, it's been a pleasure to have you on. We'll leave it there and save it for your next appearance. Uh, everything else we could talk about here today for your next appearance on Salt Talks. We hope that you'll be able to join us in person in September. Uh, we're, we're bringing back our in-person Salt Conferences in New York. There's also the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit going on at the same time. So uh, we're excited to have just a, a really large ecosystem of, of players in the space and from the institutional world. You know, we're somebody that's a a newer entrant into the space from a SkyBridge perspective, uh, really excited about all the potential that it holds. And, and like I mentioned earlier, Bitcoin has sort of been our gateway drug and, and we're excited to, to be involved alongside uh, the things you guys are doing in the space. But thanks so much for joining us here on Salt Talks. Thanks, thanks for inviting us. And thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Asif Herji from Figure and Kyle Samani from Multicoin Capital. Uh, reminder, if you missed any part of this Salt Talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website on demand at salt.org backslash talks or uh, on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt2. Uh, we're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active. Uh, we're at Salt Conference. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We love educating people, especially on the topic of uh, crypto and digital assets. So again, uh, share this episode with your skeptical uncle when it comes to, to crypto. On behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.